Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 27 years, we have been committed to offering voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister here at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis and moderator of today's program. It's now my pleasure to introduce our guest speaker today, Branford Marsalis. From generation to generation, the music of New Orleans has shaped the people who live there. Jazz musician Branford Marsalis is a native of that city and the eldest son of one of America's most distinguished musical families. As a young musician, he gained acclaim playing in Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers and in his brother Winton's quintet. He toured and recorded with Sting, and in the 1990s served as music director for The Tonight Show. He is the founder of the Brantford Marsalis Quartet and of Marsalis Music, a recording company featuring the music of promising new artists and longtime jazz musicians. He has performed with such legendary jazz musicians as Miles Davis, Dizzy, Gillespie, Herbie Hancock, and Sonny Rollins and he is a frequent guest soloist with chamber and symphony orchestras. He's brought his musical gifts into the classroom, developing curricula for high schools and sharing his expertise with students at colleges and universities throughout the country. After Hurricane Katrina devastated his home city, he immersed himself in relief efforts and now serves as the honorary chair of New Orleans Habitat for Humanity. With his friend Harry Connick Jr., he's working to build a musician's village in the city's historic Ninth Ward. This demonstrated commitment to service, combined with a standard for artistic excellence, are hallmarks of his distinguished musical career. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Branford Marsalis. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, for those of you who are in the audience, you probably saw us like talking and whispering and scrambling back here and say, well, what are they doing? What's going on? Well, I'll tell you what was, what's going on. Uh, I started uh, working on the speech in my head about uh, a week ago, and I set Thursday as my target date. I said, well, you know, wait, what day is it today? Today, Thursday? Okay, Tuesday is my target date. Thank you. And I kept saying, well, I'm going to start writing it on Tuesday, writing it on Tuesday, writing it on Tuesday. And then I got a call on Monday saying, you've been selected for jury duty. Uh, report on Tuesday. And I said, like a fool, I said, well, I have to leave town on Wednesday, so I'll just go there at 8.30 and I'll tell them. And I said, well, I have to leave town. She says, great, have a seat and we'll get to you. So at uh, 3.45 p.m., they said, uh, you can go into the, you know, you, into the jury selection. I said, but I have to leave town. Just go. You know, the whole, so I went in. I said, I can't serve on this trial. I have to leave. They let me go at 4 o'clock. And by the time I got home, it was time to cook and kids and the whole thing. And it all went out the window. So uh, I, I came here last night figuring that I was going to write it. So I was so sleepy, I just went to bed around 9 o'clock, got up at 4 o'clock this morning and started writing, and finished it, because I pretty much was composed in my head. It's the way I write music anyway. So uh, uh, 
I, I sent it down to the computer room down in the hotel and uh, printed it out and ran over here and didn't look at it and realized that three of the pages were not printed. So, <laughs> so that's what the scramble is. So uh, uh, I'm stalling for time, but what I'm going to do, I'm going to start reading and when I get to the part where we're out, I'm going to do what I do best. I'm going to improvise. <laughs> so, uh, So I'm, I'm, I'm very honored to be asked uh, to participate in such a, a, a prestigious ongoing dialogue as this one. And uh, when I asked what the subject should be about, they, they said, uh, well, we're going to have a title called Down the River to New Orleans, which could be just about anything. We could start here. We could stop in Memphis. There's all these places we could go. And I said, you know, given that the Mississippi River starts right here in Minneapolis or from a Louisiana perspective, ends in Minneapolis. I just said that, why don't we just go right down to New Orleans and start from there since that's what I know so well. Uh, New Orleans is uh, a really, really marvelous place to be from. Uh, the food and the culture and the music are just a handful of things that make it one of the unique places in our country. In an ever-changing country like ours where the quest for individual success and accolades drives people further and further away from each other, New Orleans has pretty much avoided that and remained the same as it's always been. My brother Winton has a story he likes to tell people who aren't from New Orleans. He says, well, in New Orleans, we have this great uh, public transportation system, and a lot of people ride buses and streetcars. And if you meet somebody at a bus stop in New Orleans, and you're from New Orleans, and you talk to them, in about 10 minutes, you find that you either have something or somebody in common. And if the conversation extends for another 10 minutes, Within that span of time, each will have invited the other to their house for red beans and rice. <laughs> and I can corroborate that story a bit because just last week, uh, I was talking to one of my students. I teach at North Carolina Central University. Uh, and I was talking to them about New Orleans. They were saying, well, what makes New Orleans so special? And I was saying all that kind of stuff. The food's great. The people are great. And I was teaching them how to clean his mouthpiece because a lot of guys use alcohol to clean their mouthpieces. It's, it's not a good idea for a lot of reasons. So uh, my teacher told me that I should use white vinegar and water combination. So I said, I'll take you to the store to get some white vinegar, and we'll try it out and see if it's more effective. So we get to the store, and as he was getting out of the car, a car backed up and almost hit him. And he jumps out of the way, and I see that the license plates are Louisiana license plates. And I said, well, you get a free pass this time since you're from Louisiana. She goes, why are you from Louisiana? I said, yeah, you know, I was born in Brobridge. She says, yeah, well, you know, I live in the city. I said, well, I grew up in the city. She said, really, you're from New Orleans? And we started talking, and literally 10 minutes, because she was leaving. She says, well, I'm about to go to Hawaii, but look, why don't you give me your number? You know, I'll come over, man. Y'all cooking red beans, right? I haven't had red beans in months. <laughs> and I said, well, baby, you know, you come on back. You give us a call. You have some red beans and some jambalaya waiting for you. She said, Lord have mercy, I'm calling y'all. So, you know, that's... And he was looking at it, and he says, man, I don't even believe that just happened. I said, yeah, Joey, that's, <laughs> that's how it is. Uh, on August 29, 2005, I was as shocked as anyone uh, at the events that occurred uh, that day and the following day and the subsequent days to come. Uh, on that day, I was on a golf course in Durham, North Carolina, where I live, and I called my parents to make sure that they had evacuated, because with my dad, you never know. And... Uh, then I called my brother Delphio because he's as stubborn as ever. And 
for the last three or four hurricanes, he, he stayed at home and rode him out while his much saner wife went to Houston. And this time I implored him to leave, and he said, man, you know, I saw everything on television, I'm going to leave for this one. I said, good, man, get out of there. And uh, I pretty much thought that was that when, when they said that the hurricane had, been, uh, had, had uh, uh, slowed to a Category 3, uh, went to bed and turned on the television the next morning and, and basically sat on the sofa the entire day, uh, not believing what I was seeing and f feeling probably as helpless as I'd ever felt in my life. And I think that a lot of what happened in New Orleans is, uh, is, is, is reflective of, of the dark side of, of my fair city. Uh, systemic government corruption and uh, our cynical acceptance of it have kind of made New Orleans into a place like a, a, a Caribbean island for lack of a better term, uh, we are completely dependent on tourism for our lifeblood. Uh, New Orleans is the only major city in the country that does not have a Fortune 500 company and certainly won't be getting one <laughs> since the events that occurred. As a matter of fact, no, we did have one. That was the energy company, Entergy. And they de declared bankruptcy 24 hours after the storm. The schools in the city... <laughs> My computer just showed up, that's right. Okay, go away, go, thank you. All right, here we go. Uh, the schools in the city, I was just kind of riffing on that too, I really didn't write that down, but I, I'll get back to it. The schools in the city, yes. The schools in our city, or as worse as there are in the country. And there were times when I was living there that I felt that it was almost done on purpose. Because uh, of New Orleans being the type of city that it is, it is not the kind of city where you want to raise a bunch of really bright, well-educated, ambitious high school seniors because there are no jobs to place them in. But where there are jobs that are needed is in the various hotels restaurants and nightclubs that permeate the city to cater to the tourist industry. And they are all low paying jobs, the kinds of jobs that kids who routinely make 1500 to 1600 on their SAT will not look for as a permanent way of making a living. When my friends around the world would say, I hear you're from New Orleans, what's it like? I used to have a running joke. I'd say New Orleans is a town that's always one serious hurricane from complete financial ruin. And little did I know that one day my thesis would be completely correct. When I started thinking about those events uh, and other things that have happened in our country in the last uh, two or three years, or even prior to that, it brought me back to uh, a golf tournament, believe it or not, that I played in Ventura, California in 2004. It, at the time, it was, called the, the, it was called the Tiger Woods World Challenge. And it's sponsored by, ironically, Target. <laughs> and I'm not so sure as to why Target would allow themselves to sponsor a golf course in a place other than their home base in December. <laughs> but I guess Ventura is as good a place as any. And in this particular setting, they had this celebrity section and they paired celebrities with each other, which was 
it was different and it was kind of funny and, and strange and cool. So my foursome was uh, me, uh, Kevin James, who's from that show, The King of Queens, uh, the successful pop producer, Jimmy Jam, who produced all of Janet Jackson's hits. And out of nowhere, New Hampshire Senator Judd Gregg. <laughs> now, of all, out of all those guys, you know, because the, the one thing that's great about golf, for those of you ha who haven't played it, is that it's not like other sports because there's very little action and a lot of walking and a lot of talking. If you added up the amount of times that you actually hit the ball in four and a half hours that you spent on the course, it might be something like 20 minutes. So by the end of it, you're either going to really like the people you play with or you're really going to hate them. There's no in-between in that. And pretty, pretty much into the first hour, I found myself hanging around Senator Greg, and we were talking about a variety of things because I actually contemplated going into politics for a long time when I was younger. And we talked about a variety of subjects. And uh, he, he, was, he was great, and he was very engaging and very kind to me and talked about things he didn't have to talk about. And at the end of the round, uh, we were in a group that met Tiger as he discussed his plans for this education center that he was building in Anaheim, California. And people were asking questions, what's, what's it going to, and, and Senator Gregg asked the question that seemed to have come out of nowhere. He said, so are you going to be teaching any civics classes at this education center. And Tiger said, well, I'm not sure. I'll have to check on that one. And then he spent another five minutes talking about how important it was for our kids to learn civics and how damaging it's been to our citizenry the last 30 years that we haven't taken it. Amongst other factors, I feel that the absence of civics has contributed vastly to the current lack of understanding as to the demands placed on citizens in our republic. I didn't know it was a political speech. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, how it plays in New Orleans, and the way that I can tie it in, is that the citizens of Louisiana have long tolerated the, the misdeeds of our politicians. I mean, for at least 100 years and with a wink and a nod and kind of laughing about it because the politicians would always assure us that if we needed a school, we'd get a school. If a friend of theirs needed a boat, do the right thing, you get your boat. And everything was based on short-term interests without one iota of thinking about the consequences in the long-term, the long-term effects on the community or on the state. This kind of thinking has led to the current state that we are in as a nation, I think. The newfangled mantra, let the market decide, has been trumpeted everywhere in our country for the last decade or so. Unfortunately, in this claim, there's little discussion of how the market, how, the, how what the market often does, being economically expedient, is oftentimes at the expense of the citizenry as a whole. I personally believe that we should have a caveat to the mantra. Say something like, let the market decide almost always unless there is a direct conflict with the public good. I think we have all felt, uh, thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> we have all, I think that we have all felt uh, the effects of this, this uh, the, the lack of empathy that, that we have all over our country. Uh, whenever, in, I live in North Carolina, a very conservative state, and whenever the, the war comes up, of course there are those who are for it and there are those who are against it, and they start screaming their little memorized sound bites at one another. And 
I mean, I, I never thought that we should have gone in in the first place, but now that we're there, be that as it may, the only thing out of all of this that has outraged me is the fact that we as, we have, as citizens have, have not been asked to share the burden that our soldiers are sharing. We are, I think it's the first time in our history that, that we, were, we were spending trillions of dollars on war and getting tax cuts at the same time. So that the idea of patriotism is putting a ribbon on the back of your car as opposed to what my grandmother had to do, give up stockings, uh, eat food rations, uh, give up all tin, all metal, everything to serve the war effort. Uh, we, have, uh, we have soldiers who are even today getting killed by these uh, IEDs as they call them. And uh, I was reading an article, I mean, you can never really tell if they're true, but it seems true, where, they have where one particular company has developed uh, a kind of V-shaped shell that prevents these blasts from damaging the soldiers inside of the, the trucks. And that the majority of these trucks have gone to the Iraqi police and not to our soldiers. And I just feel that, uh, not saying that the Iraqi police aren't important to their nation, clearly they are, there should have been a tax for us that I would have gladly paid. And anybody who claims to be a patriot would have gladly paid to make sure that our soldiers get the help that they need. In addition to Katrina, or in addition to that, you have a situation like Katrina, where a $100 million investment to redirect ships from the mouth of the river from a further distance, thus allowing the silt that is now being diverted into the Gulf of Mexico to return back to the Louisiana coast, which then would shore up the marshes, which have been eroding at a football field an hour, thus allowing that water to just rush through uninhibited and basically wipe out the entire Louisiana protection system. It would have been more expensive to the bottom line of the shipping industry, but in hindsight, it would have saved the citizens of this country from shelling out close to $81 billion in repairs in Louisiana and the Gulf Coast. We also have the tire fiasco involving Firestone and Ford Explorers. The airport security collapse on September 11, 2001, where the consequences of politicians in for, for, for uh, I guess for political reasons, rightly afraid to federalize the airport security, lest they be branded as tax mongers and thrown out of office. And the airline's refusal to add to their bottom line finally led to a catastrophic head on that fateful day. Add to that the recent inequities at Walter Reed Army Hospital, the latest in a string of tragedies where federal institutions have been privatized and suddenly subject to the harsh realities of the market. I think that if there's one area where we should kind of ignore market constraints and go into debt, it should be for our soldiers, especially in this time. In the minutes after the realities of Katrina were becoming evident on the entire country, my phone started ringing. And I picked up the phone and it's like, well, I'm AP, do you have a comment? No. Here's a CNN, do you have a comment? No, I don't. You know, they wanted to know how I felt about the city. Will it come back? How is my family? It's the sort of nauseating inquisition that kind of made me happy to leave the entertainment business behind in the first place. So I wasn't interested in revisiting that mentality. There was no substance to the questions and I wouldn't answer them. After about five days, my manager called and told me that I had to make a statement, that people were wondering why I was silent. And I won't say here in the church what I told her. <laughs> but 
paraphrasing, I said that I wouldn't do that and I wouldn't feed into the mentality that reduces people's tragedies into 30-second sound bites. And And I begged her to help me find a way to make a definitive statement of action at a time when people were wringing their hands and pointing fingers and blaming, even to this day, whomever they could blame. And while they're blaming and not blaming, nothing's getting done. Two days later, she called me and said that uh, Harry Connick Jr., uh, who's a childhood friend of mine, was, was going back into New Orleans. And if I wanted to go, I could hitch a ride with those guys. Two hours later, I was on a plane to Jackson, Mississippi and we drove all night to get to New Orleans. When we got there, crossing the Greater New Orleans Bridge as the sun rose, it was like a scene in the old Charlton Heston movie, The Omega Man, where there was one man driving around a completely empty city in a car. And here we were driving around with no people, broken limbs, with the exception of military personnel, every half a mile, it would seem. To give you a sense of how uh, profound the tragedy was at the time, this was the eighth day after the storm. And when we got to Jackson, one of my brothers, Jason, his wife came to me and said, you know, I'm glad you're going into the city. You know, can you look up my grandfather's house? And she gave me the keys. I said, yeah, we'll do that. Where's your grandfather's house? And he said, well, he lives in New Orleans East. And I gave her the keys back and I said, honey, it's under 12 feet of water right now. This, I can't go. And it, it remained under 12 feet of water for another two weeks after that. So after spending the entire day in New Orleans helping the few people we could help who were still left, because by the time we got there, most of the, the, the stranded people were gone, and there were a few people that needed things, and we tried to get them whatever, they could, whatever we could, because Harry was uh, doing some, some kind of like reporting work for NBC, so he had access to goods and, and services and water and, and the like. Uh, Harry says, man, we need to drive to Houston and go play for the... Uh, the, the evacuees at the Astrodome. And I said, well, man, that's great, Harry, but I didn't bring a horn, man. I just, I found out where I could go and I just threw a couple of, you know, pairs of underwear in a bag and took off. And he said, well, we'll get you a horn in Houston. So we go to my parents' house and we try to go to my parents' house and we get down Carrollton Avenue, which is completely dry. And when you get to Carrollton and Hickory, which there's no way, I can't really give you a re reference, you know, because it's six blocks from Carrollton and Claiborne, which doesn't really help you very much. But uh, <laughs> two blocks in, the water keeps going up and up. And I, I had on some hip waders and I said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in the house because and, and, my, my, my mom wants me to go check on the house. So I had on my hip waders and I was walking real slow. And one of the sheriffs says, I mean, you got to watch out for snakes in there, bro. You know, they got snakes and I looked at the water. The water was like blacker than 12,000 midnights. I said, I don't think there are any snakes in there, my man. The only thing I'm worried about is a piece of broken glass. So I kind of shuffled my feet to make sure I didn't step on anything that might have been lying in the muck. And it took me 15 minutes to make a walk that I'd made in three to five minutes for most of my young life. Uh, snuck into the house on my hands and knees because my mom and dad have these really good storm shutters. So the house was pitch black and there was one light in the back of the house. And as I got closer to it, I said, well, there shouldn't be any lights on. There's no electricity, nothing works. There was one small little two foot hole uh, that had been knocked off by the winds from the roof. And from the roof, it was right where the tool shed is and laying on the floor where right in the beam was a flashlight. I mean, you know, 
the Lord has his mysterious ways. That's all I can say. So I get the flashlight and I'm looking around the house and I can't call. So I'm just making mental notes. Everything is fine. Told my dad the piano is completely safe. You don't have to worry about that. It's nowhere near the, the back of the house. And when I went up to check in the piano room, right to the left of the piano was a soprano saxophone. <laughs> so I, uh, I opened the case and I see that the bell was bent. And then I remembered that six years ago I dropped a horn. And we went to New Orleans, and I just left it there. I said, I'll, I'll come back and get it fixed. You know, I'll just leave it here, because you never know when I might need it. <laughs> it didn't have a mouthpiece. So we left New Orleans, and I come shuffling back, because Harry actually has it on film. It's pretty funny. I'm waiting in the water, and I have this case. He goes, man, what is that? I said, you won't even believe it, man. It's my saxophone. It's a soprano saxophone. He says, well, that's part of it. You know? So I said, now we need mouthpiece and a reed. And we drove to Baton Rouge, and I saw my parents, because that's where they were at the time. And I said, your house is fine. And then we kept on. And we got to Lake Charles, and there was a music store that was open. And they said, we don't have any soprano mouthpieces, but we have a reed. So I said, all right, we got reeds. Now we just got to keep going. And they said, but we have a sister store in Beaumont, Texas, which is just over the border from Lake Charles. It's another 35, 40-minute drive. So we get to the store, and we called the guy. And he says, well, we haven't had any business, so I'm just going to wait here for you. I'm going to wait until you get there. So he closes at 6. We got there at 6.30. He was right there waiting for us. And I said, yeah, we need a, we need a, we need a mouthpiece. And he said, well, I only got two. And I tried one. I said, well, this will work. And I started playing, and the horn wouldn't play because it was bent on the bottom. And I said, oh, what am I going to do now? And he says, well, today's your lucky day. I'm closing the store, but I happen to be the woodwind repair man. <laughs> so I said, just fix it so it can play. It doesn't even have to be pretty. Just, just balance it out. And it took him 30, 35 minutes. He didn't know us from Adam. That was the best part. He's like, so you guys are musicians, huh? I said, yeah, that's great. <laughs> so what are you guys doing? He said, oh, you know, we're going to go down and play for the evacuees. That's really good that you're doing that, man. Because, you know, our, our, our people, they need some, some cheering up the spirits and stuff. You know, so what kind of stuff you guys are going to play? It, it got comical after a while because I figured, well, in Lake Charles, they didn't know me, but they knew who Harry was. They were like dying when Harry walked in. This guy was like, yeah, and you, you play piano? That's, that's great. Yeah, you know, just, <laughs> well, it was great. I mean, we just had a good chat with him and, and, and we headed on to Houston. And from that point, it was probably another, what, two hours, two and a half hours to Houston. And Harry started saying, look, man, you know, we got to do stuff for the city. I want to build a school. And I said, man, no, I, I'm really not cool with bureaucracy right now. I just, I don't want to be near it. I, schools are subject to, you know, school boards. And I, you know, it's not practical. You can't fly back. We got to do something better than that. And he says, well, I'm working with Habitat for Humanity, and they're going to build some homes. And I said, well, man, why don't we just get them to build a lot of homes? We can raise some money and get them to build homes, and we can help out some musicians that way. And then Harry says, yeah, man, you know, because musicians in New Orleans basically are, are paid in cash. You can add them to the people who work in the hotels, because they also work in the nightclubs. They're paid in cash. Uh, they don't have regular receipts. They rarely pay their taxes because they haven't had to. So in terms of home ownership, it was an impossibility. So working with Habitat allowed us to take the musicians who were interested and put them in classes where they could learn what it is they had to do to fix their home. Because one of Habitat's great rules is that you have to put in three, is it 3,000 hours or 300 hours? 
300, thank you. 3,000 would be a lot, right. <laughs> 300 hours of sweat equity. So you have to go in there and build your own home. You have to learn about, electronic, about, about electronics, you know, about uh, electricity. You, you learn how to fix things around your house. So you become not only a homeowner, but you become a self-sufficient homeowner. And uh, they teach you, if you don't know how to pay, pay your taxes, they teach you how to do that. They teach you how to apply for the loans. They teach you everything. And a lot of musicians came on board. And it wasn't just for musicians. They were also regular people who also need homes, too. And I wouldn't feel comfortable only giving homes to musicians, nor, nor would Harry, uh, despite the fact that it's against the law as well. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, we went from having conversations in... Uh, September of 2005, and by April of 2006, we had four homes on the property that we bought. By December, we had 32 homes, uh, 14 which were livable and the others weren't because of bureaucracy. The city had to bring the power lines in and they hadn't made it up there for the last month. It's just funny how that always works. And uh, at this stage, I was there a month ago, we have 40 homes built. We have another 40 homes that are about to be finished by next year. And we broke ground on uh, the Ellis Marcellus uh, Center for Music Education, which will be adjacent to the homes and a park. And the Baptist Crossroads Foundation, uh, seeing the work that we were doing, gave us enough money to build an additional 300 homes in the area. It's one of those things that uh, people often ask me about, you know, well, isn't it great what you've done? And I mean, I, I haven't really done anything. You know, and I say, well, I haven't really done anything at the time. I, I was scheduled to have uh, and had uh, shoulder surgery last year. And the doctor told me I couldn't swing a hammer for a year after the surgery because they had to reattach my bicep tendon to another part of my body and didn't want me doing anything. So uh, I'm going to get the go ahead probably this month in, in January 2009. I'm going to be swinging away. Finally, I'll get to actually contribute something other than rhetoric. But I find it amazing that when I'm doing interviews that they find this so amazing because it always goes back to the idea that I was raised to understand that these are the sorts of things that citizens do for citizens in need. I don't find it to be shocking at all. I just think that it's the way we should be. You know, it's kind of like uh, in my young career and even in the middle of my career when people would do interviews with me and they'd call the interview surprisingly candid. It surprised me after a while and then it started to make me realize that I guess most people lie in interviews and they were shocked when you told them what you felt. <laughs> and it kind of opens your eyes in a way. You say, man, okay. So people are just, they just, just come here and lie and, and you don't do it. And then when I, you know, when I was working in corporate, like at Columbia or at NBC, then they would call me in and say, hey, you can't say stuff like that. I said, oh, you want me to lie? They said, yeah, That's, you know, you gotta, you know, just you don't offend people. Don't make people mad. Don't ask questions. Which to me is, is, that's the opposite of citizenship, to not ask questions. You know, uh, one of the things that, that really struck me last year was uh, I like to watch, uh, my wife loves, and, and I, I tolerate Bill Maher uh, and, and his show, because 
at least he brings people on who have a, a opposing points of views and they're forced to respect the others, which is rare these days, and it doesn't devolve into shouting matches. And on one particular show, they brought on Richard Dreyfus, And Bill's thing is, I mean, he pokes fun at whoever's in power. You know, so now it's, it's the Bush administration, and he gets his points across with jokes, because everybody likes jokes. That's his thing. But you don't want to have serious conversations. And Richard Dreyfus launches into this serious conversation, which you could see Bill Maher getting more and more irritated because he's, he's, he wants jokes. And he basically said, you know, 9-11 occurred, and, and he said it, 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 the fault lies in, in us as Americans because we don't understand our responsibility as citizens. Not 9-11, I'm sorry, the, the Iraq war. He says, as citizens, we don't ask the questions. When you don't understand what your job is as a citizen of the United States of, uh, of America, and you dull yourself with shows about entertainment and funny and hee-hee and ha-ha in a crisis, you turn to the nearest person and say, please, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And sometimes they tell you what to do. And that's when the trouble starts. And he had this quote, when he said it and it struck me, and fortunately we have this thing called YouTube, and I was able to go on YouTube and hear what he said and I wrote it down for you guys. Uh, because if you don't know, Richard Dreyfuss, the guy who's in Jaws, you know, the actor, he is now a civics teacher at Oxford in England. He's, uh, he's you know, and he's just, he's, he says, I just, you know, I love movies and that was a great part of my life, but now I'm doing this. So his statement was, you can actually learn. His, his premise is, I should, the premise is, is that uh, American ideals, d democratic ideals are something that have to be taught and instilled in people. They are not, as we like to believe, organic. They're not hardwired into the DNA. And he says that it's human nature to want to teach your children the things that you want them to learn and to avoid teaching them the things that you don't want them to learn. But when you do that, you cripple their ability to ask the questions. And he says, he says, you can actually learn the constancy of curiosity and the constancy of outrage. You can learn that it is okay to keep asking the questions, to be dissenters, and if you, are not, if you are not taught it, you don't know it. But we owe ourselves and the United States that we will pass off to our children to relearn the tools of reason, logic, clarity, dissent, civility, and debate. And those are the nonpartisan basis of democracy, and without them, you can kiss this thing goodbye. There are people in my fair city of New Orleans who have suddenly awakened to that reality. Some of the wealthier patrons of the city who used to kind of wink and let tell jokes about the systemic corruption have decided that enough is enough. And they are uh, mounting pressure to force the state government to press charges against crooked politicians. The federal government actually has a minimum right now of six of our former politicians about to go to trial and probably going to jail. And a couple more that they have their sights on, I know for a fact. Uh, New Orleans is, is, is awakened to the shock that for the first time, because uh, New Orleans is a clannish city, there are people who had lived in homes where they had been the third generation of people living in the same home. So it's not even that they don't leave the city, they don't even leave the neighborhood they were born in. So Katrina forced, the, forced them out 
And some of our smarter people have realized what life is like outside of New Orleans, and many of them are not coming back. So for the first time in the history of our city, we have experienced a real dr uh, brain drain. And people are waking up to the reality of what this means. So a lot of the old ways of doing business are finally going the old way. The ineptitude of our schools is going to put the city in the bind for at least another decade. But there are signs of life. We have charter schools. Uh, we have people who are fighting to turn the school system around, understanding that uh, we now have a governor in place who uh, has an MBA and has business contacts and is really going to do his best to draw businesses to Louisiana. There are many businesses that have always wanted to go there because of the wide diversity in culture and food and the people, but refused to do so because of the hundreds of thousands of dollars in graft and payout they would have to give out just to begin the discussion. So I hope that these things are changing because I see one thing that I haven't seen in the city for a long time, as we called it, the city that care forgot. The citizens are ready for a change. And with that, I thank you. Thank you, Branford Marsalis. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originated from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, senior minister at Westminster Church, moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is Branford Marsalis. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience at Westminster, I'd like to thank the forum's many supporters, especially the co-sponsor of today's event, the Institute for Global Citizenship at McAllister College. This is the last forum in our fall series. We invite you to join us for our spring 2008 season when we'll focus on the presidential election. <laughs> we'll see you there. Information on upcoming forums will be available online at eWestminster.org. Branford, if you would return to the pulpit, I'll present the questions from our audience. Question specifically about jazz. How does jazz reflect the American character? I don't know. Uh, my brother has a good one for that. But uh, I, I just think that uh, the thing that, that good jazz, that when it's played well, the thing that, that it really represents is it, it represents all of, all of our country. Because uh, much of the early jazz was based on the John Philip Sousa marches that were permeating the, the city at that time, you know, in the 19th century, in the, in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And jazz is uh, an African sensibility that was brought over by the slaves while playing on European instruments, except for the drum set. The drum set was invented in New Orleans because, you know, in marching band you have a bass drum and you have a snare drum and then you have a cymbal. And then this one guy said, well, man, if I can just get one drummer, I can make more money for myself. So I don't want to pay three of them. So this one guy said, well, I'll be the drummer. And he just put them all together. And there you go, drum set. But other than that, you know, which is, I guess, that's very American, too. Just finding a way to, to make more for yourself. So uh, 
I just think that at its best, the, 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 the sharing of ideas, the discussion, the call and response, all of those things are endemic of, of, of uh, great times in our country and great ideals. When, when all of us were screaming and arguing, not necessarily uh, with a desire to be right, but with a desire to do what is in the best interest of the nation in general. Just say something about what inspired you as a young man to uh, have a heightened consciousness of the importance of civics. Who were your mentors? Well, my parents were my mentors. Uh, and I think that's ultimately where it comes from. Uh, we often have these debates about uh, schools. And you hear it all the time. Well, I need to send my kid to a good school. And then I would basically find, I sound like my father. Because then I would say, well, what's a good school? Yeah, a school that has more people who pass tests. So you want your kid to be a test taker? I mean, it's just like, there's all these things that my dad would say because my dad was a school teacher. So we often had uh, conversations at home like the one we were talking about today. And the, the only thing that was off the table in our household was an uninformed opinion. You couldn't just, you know, hide behind the First Amendment and say, I have the right to say whatever I want. He says, no, son. And then he gave me this terrible speech the first time he said it. Uh, it was about uh, Thomas Paine writing Common Sense and the British trying to suppress it. And the reason we have the First Amendment is that not so you can say anything you want, but when you have something actually intelligent to say that might be threatening to the government or a point of view, they can't restrict you from doing it. And one time, uh, some friends of mine dared to come over to the house because they only come over once because the conversation was just like they said, man, I, you know, I don't know how you can stand that, you know. <laughs> You know, because they just want to be like, they'll go to my dad and say, man, did you, did you watch the Brady Bunch? He says, nope, I don't watch that. And, you know, it's like kids, you know. Well, I have this song, so never heard it. So let me ask you something, Wellington. And he starts talking, and Wellington said, made one of them, like, far out, uninformed things. And he says, well, where'd you get that from? And, he, and I knew he was going to say it. He says, well, in this country. And I said, don't say it. Don't say it. He says, in this country, I have a right to my opinion. No, son. Let me tell you about Thomas Paine. It's like, ah. Oh. So, so it, it, it. It was, it was, you know, it, I came by it honestly. Several questions have uh, asked about the linking of race and the response of the government to Katrina and the disaster there. Care to comment on that? It's one of the great myths uh, of the entire uh, Katrina thing. Uh, I think that as a whole, we need to quit talking about diversity in terms of skin color and start talking about it, what it really is, economics. There were a lot of black people who could not afford to leave, and the government of New Orleans did very little to help them, which is the way it's always been. But if the hurricane hadn't been so catastrophic, there would never have been a discussion on why they were left in the first place, because they'd been, you know, some of them had been riding out hurricanes for generations. Uh, but there are also towns like Burris, Louisiana, and St. Bernard Parish, which are predominantly white, that were decimated by this storm, and the government also did nothing to help them. And because they're not in the, in the city itself, and it also doesn't have the tension that we often need in the news to create good media, it's a story that just goes ignored. And Point Coupe, and there's all these places, all these fisher, uh, fishers, uh, fishing communities all over the city where there are virtually no black people who live there, and their houses are gone, their livelihoods are gone, and the government hasn't done anything to help them. I think that the question is less about race in this situation because there are a lot of New Orleanians who are very wealthy and very successful, and most of them lived in New Orleans East, and they were gone. I knew a lot of the people in my generation. They weren't there. They, went, they were all over the country doing their thing, and they're living in 
preparing to move back to their homes. Some of them are staying where they are. So the discussion should be more about economic diversity. And back to what I was saying, what does a society do for those that can't do for themselves? And I think that the answer from New Orleans is not very much. And you can extend that to the federal level because there are those in federal government who do not realize that or don't accept anymore the notion that the federal government is one of the few places that can set an example for the entire nation. Like if Mayor Nagin had been swift in his response and got buses out, it wouldn't have mattered to anybody, you know, here. But if someone of, of a power of authority, not, not even the president per se, it could have been anybody in that chain that stands and says, this is what we stand for and this is what we're going to do. In fact, nothing was done. And that was a terrible, terrible uh, thing example for the rest of the world. And when I travel abroad, I have to hear that all the time. And it's really hard. You don't ever come back to that one. There's just no comeback. Uh, the only thing I can see good out of it is that uh, Governor Perry of Texas, when, the, when Hurricane Rita was coming through Texas, he said, we need a full evacuation of the city of Houston, city of Galveston. We need all these things. And then he said words that I've never heard any governor say. If you cannot afford to get out, Call us at this number, and we will have buses stationed in places to get you out. But that's a direct, that's the Katrina effect. If Katrina hadn't happened before and all this stuff been on television around the world, it would have been the same as it would have been in New Orleans. It would have been, well, if you can't get out, buy a boat. Good luck to you. Because generally, that's how we treat people in our country right now who don't have. We just kind of say, well, too bad for you. And we need to look at that, and we need to find ways to address that that are sane. You know? We need to find ways to address that as a nation. So, several questions uh, connecting the rich history of New Orleans and music and uh, the, the possibility of music being a, a tool for healing in the culture and society. Was, was your concert in Houston a, an event of healing through music? It was, it was an, event, uh, it was an event, event for healing for me because I was traumatized and I wasn't even in the storm. Just watching it on television just freaked me completely out and I wasn't myself for days. And a lot of things happened on that day. Uh, like NBC was following Harry around and Harry saw the footage and he says, man, the, the look on your face when you was playing was just something I've never seen on you. He says like, it's like resignation and anger and I just wasn't myself until because we were playing and we were up in like one of those TV booths, up luxury box or whatever you call them, and I just felt apart, which is what I felt when I was in North Carolina. And I was like, I gotta go down there, man. I can't, we don't need to be up here. We need to be down there. And Harry said, yeah, you're right, man, let's go. And all of these celebrities were showing up. And they had these policemen with them. And Harry turns around to the cop and he says, officer, I know you're doing your job. And he says, but, I don't think it really looks good for me, a New Orleanian, to even give an image that I need protection from my own people. And the cop said, suit yourself. And he backed up. And we just went out there and we talked to the people. We talked to people. We laughed with some of them. We cried with some of them. We prayed with some of them. And some of them just wouldn't talk to us at all because their lives were destroyed. And everything they had in the world was in a little plastic shopping bag. And, and then there were other people who were just, like typical New Orleanians, garrulous and hilarious. One of them, this woman, she kept saying, Marcellus, take me with you. I can sing. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I don't want to go back to New Orleans. I want to go on the road with y'all. I said, no, baby, you can't go with us. And she was like, she fought, I mean, she kept me laughing the whole time. So uh, being around the people, you know, uh, getting the chance to talk about the Saints game that they were going to put on the screen and the big screen in the dome in the coming days, it was, it was great for me. I could actually, I, had, I, I got my sense of self back once I left there. We didn't sleep for two days. And, uh, Oh and, the, oh, and the best part, like the whole saxophone story I was telling you about, this is, this, but it doesn't get no, this is just, so we left Houston, and I was going to, to Durham, and I had to fly through Atlanta, and I got on the plane in Houston, no, before I got on the plane in Houston, my old high school girlfriend is a flight attendant for Continental, she lives in Houston, I saw her, so we hugged, and we talked for a little bit, and talked about her parents, and how they were doing, and what we were doing in Houston, and this whole thing, then I got on the plane, and I fell asleep, and it's only, you know, I don't know how long the flight is, an hour, hour and a half. And when, they, when the plane landed, the flight attendant woke me up, and I opened the thing, and the, the saxophone wasn't there. And I said, oh, I must have left it in Houston. So I went to the lost and found, and I said, I, I want to report an item that I know I'll never see again. <laughs> she goes, well, how can you be so sure? I said, because I have a feeling that it was put there for a purpose, and its purpose was served. And I'm cool with that. So, but I'm going to just follow through the chains. And it was a soprano saxophone. I was at this gate. It was under a seat. And if I'm lucky, somebody that needs it took it, and they're going to do something good with it. Because that's how I felt about it when it happened. It's like, you know, the Lord was just saying, well, that serves its purpose, son. You don't need that anymore. Because, I, you know, I hadn't, been, I hadn't missed it. I have, one, I have two at home. And I just said, yeah, I'm not going to miss that one. So it was healing for me. It was great for me. I, it, I'm glad I did it. You described the shock of Katrina and its aftermath uh, to the citizens of New Orleans as kind of a uh, treatment to wake them up and to be ready for change. I hope so. Is there a, a similar kind of or a parallel shock treatment for the whole nation that might wake up people and help them be ready for change? Absolutely. What is that? Um, there's a price to be paid when you don't ask questions. There's a price to be paid when bad things happen because bad, it's weird when you go to Europe where they've had like a million wars, they kind of see wars, yeah, you know, sorry about that. Like you go to talk to them about 9-11, they're like, you know, wow. You know, because they all have stories. I mean, people are alive who have stories. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid and my house was blown to smithereens when the bombs from Germany came. And you go to Germany and say, yeah, well, I remember my grandfather telling me stories about how they firebombed Dresden. It's like, it's personal stories. In our country, we don't have those kind of stories because of our strategic geographic location. And the wars are never fought here since the, since the War of 1812. They're just not really fought on our soil. So we had this kind of unbelievably traumatic reaction to it. It was more on, on, of the lines that these sorts of things are not supposed to happen to us. So instead of us feeling included in the rest of the world that kind of deals with these tragedies, we felt excluded and unique and special. And I think that you know, sometimes when bad stuff happens, you have to take a breath and pause and ask the right questions. And we didn't. We just accepted the answers as dogmatic truth and proceeded from that point as a nation. And <clears throat> I think there's a lesson in that. I think, and I think that people are awake and aware of the lesson. I think a lot of people, they, you know, the newspapers sat on their hands and they admitted. They admitted that they were terrified to ask the questions. So, so, the, it, it, so the idea that, well, what is patriotism? Isn't patriotism when you have to stand up for an unpopular stance? If you feel that it threatens, you know, the Constitution of the United States, shouldn't you speak out? Shouldn't you speak up? And especially when you have the, the, the 
the, the, I can't think of the right word, the instruments to actually speak up in a way that has an effect. And a lot of those people chose not to. You know? Thank you, Branford Marsalis. Thank you.